Welcome to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast, where we dive into your inner world to explore all of the psychological, emotional, energetic, and spiritual components that may be influencing your struggle with food and eating. I'm your host, Sarah Emily Spears, a trained psychotherapist and energy worker who recovered from my own eating disorder. And now I help women just like you do the inner work to address the real issues keeping you stuck in your problematic eating patterns. Because I assure you, your problem with food is about way more than food. So join me and guest experts as we discuss the psychology of eating and healing and empower you with tangible steps you can take today to begin to improve your relationship with food and yourself from a place of true nourishment and care. Boonan Brown is a priest in a Zen Buddhist order, somatic attachment repair specialist, tea ceremony facilitator, and a small group facilitator. His journey to healing over the years has brought him through 15 years of focus on the question, what is the mind and why do we suffer? His journey eventually brought him through authentic relating, contemplative practices, embodiment practices, and then into the field of attachment repair. In this newly expanding field, he focused his practice to bring the skills and understanding out into the world so that people can stop the cycles of suffering that come from unhealthy relationships and learn to rest into the easefulness of deep connection. Hi, Bunan. Nice to have you here. Hi, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been lucky enough to work with you on this stage of my healing journey, and you have really helped to open my mind to the world of attachment of attachment styles, of attachment ruptures, and attachment repair work, which Mm -hmm. I'm realizing is sort of the foundation of maybe everything. I don't know if it's too extreme to say that, but it seems to be really at the foundation of how we develop our sense of self, Mm -hmm. our beliefs, our Mm -hmm. patterns, the way we handle our emotions, the way we interact in relationships, and Mm -hmm. our mental health. In this case, maybe addictions, whether it's food or substances, like it all has roots in attachment. Yeah, it sure does. And that's what's like really lit me up about it. And um, after through my years of sort of exploration and study, like eventually came on to attachment theory and was just like, oh, this is what all these different modalities have been trying to get at is this particular patterning that's lodged so deeply inside of us. Yes. It's so important, which is why Mm -hmm. I was like, I have to talk to you. I need Mm -hmm. the world to understand this. And because you've been so helpful in supporting me and identifying within myself how that looks and how to begin healing it, it just feels appropriate to be able to have this conversation with you. Well, I'm excited to dive in and see see where we end up through this. (laughs) So before we start talking about attachment, can you offer a little background on your own journey, maybe mm-hmm. towards discovering attachment or the training work that you've done that has led mm-hmm. you to this point? Yeah, let's see if I can keep that nice and short and sweet. Um, yeah, how do you squish your entire life journey into yeah. minutes? Go. Yeah, I'll say my early, early to mid twenties, like my life just wasn't working, and sort of had to make some big shifts and was really fortunate early on to come across these terms like consciousness and like human developments and really started this inward journey to figure out like what was going on inside of here. Cause you know, I grew up in a family that didn't have any emotional literacy and our school systems don't have any emotional literacy. So I was basically just going through a lot of suffering and didn't know what to do with it. 
and you know, ten about ten years in as a Buddhist practitioner with deep contemplative backgrounds and going through integral theory and authentic relating and all these all these sort of big modalities of trying to make sense of the world and what my role is it and relationship is to it. Um, I started getting these little hints of attachment and like, what is this um, world and started diving into the neurobiology of it. Cause I'm, I'm a big reader, big studier. Um, and I just like follow these rabbit holes and try to find what's effective and um, came across uh, luminous awareness program, which we're both a part of, and they were talking about attachment in there. And um, say that was like my first like big exposure to it, where they would speak to attachment and speak to secure attachment. And I'd like heard of it a little bit before then, but like my first round through, I was dating somebody that had disorganized attachment and I just, didn't know what I was in for until about two years uh, through that ride and decided to take a look at what that was. Because <laughs> um, it was, you know, it's quite painful to be in relationship with somebody that has uh, that particular attachment style, at least it was for me. And really started to take a look at that. And that was like a really big, like, step on this journey that I've just like dove into headfirst um, over the years of started with like looking at Dan Brown's approach to attachment healing. And he wrote this giant, giant book, Attachment Disturbances in Adults, A Guide to Comprehensive Repair. Um, and it's like a little 800 page tome if anybody wants some light reading. Um, That's why we're talking to you because most of us do not want to do that. Reading. Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, unless you, unless you like really want to do it as a practitioner. Um, but dove in through that way and then started looking at all the neuroscience and um, we'll say what they call modern attachment theory and just really started to see how these attachment strategies that we learn when we're so, so young, I mean, less than two years old, this stuff gets hardwired into our system. What we call attachment strategies are our emotional regulation strategies. And these ways of being that we learn of how to protect ourselves, how to get our needs met, how to show up in the world, how to explore our world, run the show all the way through the rest of our life. And if we don't take a real um, direct look at them and start to shift them, we just act out these patterns that we learned when we were oh so young. And if our parents did a really, really good job of raising us, like these patterns are very adaptive and healthy and we can get our needs met, we can show up, we can be wide open to the world. And if they did a little bit less than an okay job, um, we have some survival strategies that might be a little bit maladaptive uh, for our lives as we as we get older, which is a really nice way to say it. Right, that um, doesn't mean they were bad parents necessarily. Uh, we all yeah. had probably loving parents who really tried their best yeah. and maybe yeah. still missed some of the developmental needs that we had as babies or mm -hmm. young infants yeah what infants need to actually have secure attachment has just really started to become understood in the last like handful of years like really the last 10 even though there's there's been a small thread of it before then back into the we'll say like the 90s um but really like the importance of 
secure attachment, the importance of having it in our lives is just really starting to sort of populate its way into more conventional understanding in the last like 10 years or so. Yeah, so this is pretty new and emergent in terms of understanding of how this process works, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how it works and how important it is and how foundational it is to all these, um, let's say, issues that pop up in our lives. Especially because what you said, which is that a lot of this takes place before the age of two, Mm -hmm. meaning as adults, we don't necessarily have a memory or recollection of the events that happened or didn't happen that shaped our attachment style. Mm -hmm. So I know for me, initially it felt a little confusing or overwhelming to understand how to even begin to look at my own attachment wounds because Mm -hmm. I don't remember what happened when I was an infant. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe just describe how as an adult we could We'll maybe start with a what the attachment styles are just a mm-hmm. general overview yep. of that and then how as adults we could begin to get clarity or understand mm-hmm. which attachment attachment style might be relevant to us or mm-hmm. something that we're experiencing yeah they're yeah they're they're a little bit tricky to see in our own process unless we're activated in a relationship like there's sort of four main categories of attachment strategies. Secure is the sort of the first one. It's where we would all like to be and be like secure functioning relationships and um, internal secure attachment where you have a sense of safety and capability. We trust the world. We've had people that can see us and they really um, see the best in us and are able to reflect that back to us and show us that our needs are valuable and that we can get them met in the world and a whole bunch of different pieces like that. Like earlier you mentioned that like our attachment is our, it's our sense of self. And so we, we learn who we are and we learn what the world is through this reflective process from our, from our caregivers. And if they reflect back that we're good and that the world's safe and that we can explore it and we can get our needs met, we grow up with that as our working, like our working map of what the world is and how to how to exist through it. And then the, the next attachment strategy is the avoidance or dismissive. Um, and in our culture, you know, like the the male stereotype is usually going to be a nice representation of a tr- very stereotypical. Um, avoidant pattern of like they're not in touch with their emotions if they get upset and activated they push people away and they go into let's say the little cave of solitude and process something through and might not actually be in touch with a lot of the emotions that are underneath there and they handle their self through space mm-hmm. so a tendency to avoid perhaps the emotions mm-hmm push away from the connection yeah we'll push the connection away in order to either avoid the emotion that's there and this is all generally unconscious behavior um we'll push away from the issue and go sequester ourselves um away from people or just sort of run away and generally not feel what's actually going on underneath there and just come back and be like everything's fine it's passed which makes it a little little challenging to actually resolve the emotional rupture that's underneath there. 
And then yeah. for the women who are probably wanting to shake the man because he's not talking about his feelings, mm-hmm. I'm guessing yeah. that we tend to stereotypically have the anxious attachment style. Um, stereotypically. And like, you know, people can have any one of these attachment styles. I've seen plenty of men that have anxious and plenty of women that have uh, avoidant. So, um, but just because of the permissions in our society, we sort of lean a little bit heavier towards certain sides. Um, because, you know, women are given more permission to express emotions um, growing up than, than little boys are. And, you know, the anxious style is, um, you know, they, when they get activated, they have to sort of reach towards the other person for their own regulation. And they're really trying to make the other person okay for them to be okay for a variety of reasons, which um, we can say for another conversation when we really dive deep into each of these strategies. Um, but they learn that they have to take care of their caregiver in order for them to be cared for. And that makes them really hyper aware of how somebody else is doing, but not quite as aware of like, what do they need in that particular instance or that moment to actually be okay. And that, you know, comes with its own particular uh, issues and complications. And I will say the avoidant and anxious pairing is the second most common pairing in attachment styles and secure to secure is um, most. And then there's, you know, lots of couples out there that make the I'm going to run away whenever you get mad and the other person's going to chase them. They make that work pretty well and um, for better or worse. And that's a little bit about anxious. And then we have disorganized, which um, is talked about less in the attachment world um, just because it wasn't as well understood. Um, But it's a pretty uh, prevalent experience for people when we didn't have a very cohesive um, pattern of upbringing from our parents. Like they were pretty dysregulated a lot of times or there was particular kinds of um, abuse and things like that in the household. We grow up without a clear attachment strategy. Like we might be anxious one minute, uh, avoiding another, and we just sort of swirl through this, uh, say, vast realms of dysregulation, and it's you know fairly challenging to to live with that. Yeah, because I imagine that in those households, you might not have had many instances of feeling safety. Um, well, generally, with disorganized children, their parents were a source of threat, uh, and. So what do you do as a young child when your parent is both the source of threat, but you also need them to, to live? Because yeah. we're, hardwired, we're hardwired to need other people to live. And what does the child do with that confusion or that just that tense difficulty? Right. On the one hand, I want this love and protection from you and I need you to meet my needs. And also I'm scared of you. Mm-hmm. Right. There's some fear that, you might hurt me or neglect me or cause harm. Mm-hmm. It's that push pull of needing the parent, being afraid of the parent. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so when you talked about the needs mm-hmm. that, for example, insecure attachment, an infant or child's needs were met. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes when those needs aren't met, that's when we start to create these adaptive attachment patterns. Mm-hmm what would be like some of those core needs? Because I find, for example, when I'm working with clients, when we start to talk about needs, especially if they weren't met or they disowned them, Mm -hmm. uh, we're almost unconscious that we had these 
innate yeah. needs in the first place. Uh-huh. So what would be some of those needs that either are uh-huh. getting met or aren't getting met? Yeah, and I will say needs and discovering what they are and learning how to advocate for them and have them met is a huge piece of attachment repair. So learning how to do that is critical and that that can be taken into an art form. Um, So the, we'll say the basic core needs for a child um, to really develop secure attachment is feeling seen, feeling known, feeling protected, um, feeling comforted, uh, feeling delighted in, like their exploration in the world, their parents' delight in their exploration, and then feeling unconditional support for their best sense of self. So those are like the really fundamental ones, and then we can elaborate quite a bit from there of like we need to feel safe and we need to feel seen and known by our parents and that we can express or communicate that we're hungry or that we're tired or thirsty. Uh, We want, we're scared, so we want to be comforted. Uh, We want people that can see that we're expressing those and then they can actually come over and supply the the remedy. And if they, if our parents don't do that as child, as children, we're very, very intelligent. So there's like these, all these systems in here that are hardwired from birth that recognize it's like, oh, I have a, I have a need here. We're going to use hunger for one because I know you have a, quite a background in that. I have a need here. My parents aren't very good at recognizing that need that I have here. So I'm actually going to push that into the background because it's harder for me to have that need and see it's not getting met than it is to actually ignore it. And so there's, you know, there's children out there, adults that never actually had their, um, that particular need like reflected back to them. So they don't actually know when they're hungry. They can like recognize when their blood sugar like drops off a cliff and they're like, oh, I think I was supposed to eat. But there's this reflective process that our parents give us of like, oh, the baby's crying. Let me try to soothe it. Oh, it was hungry. Okay, it got nourished. The baby's happy. And we keep repatterning that process. And that's how we like really embody this like this in intimacy with our own needs and our own expression of them and our own capacity to have them met in the world. Right. That I could imagine as a child or infant that having the need and not getting it met, for example, physical nourishment, that there would mm-hmm. be this anxiety around not getting it or a fear mm-hmm. that would kick in because you're not receiving something that you need. Mm-hmm. And yeah how soothing or comforting it would be when that is met mm-hmm. right? that that would create this sense of peace or knowing that I can trust mm-hmm. when I have a yeah. need, it will be satisfied. Yeah. What I love about what you shared is that these needs expand far beyond physical. Mm-hmm. Like the five ones that you mentioned are not about having clothes and food and shelter. It's the emotional needs that are really key for our development and mm-hmm. creating that secure attachment. Yep. Yeah, it creates, literally creates our sense of self in the world and how we navigate um, our world, especially emotionally, because you know, prior to two years old, our, our left brain hasn't really come online, that, that cognitive thinking, like we, have, we just haven't developed that capacity yet. So our early life is all emotionally based. And that's why like attachment theory is emotional regulation theory. 
And that's actually our primary sense of self. We just don't realize it. Um, we, we think we know who we are. And there's plenty of examples of like, okay, next Tuesday at three o'clock, I'm going to do this thing. Tuesday at three o'clock rolls around and we don't do that thing. We procrastinate or we do all this other stuff. And we're like, why did that happen? Well, there's this whole emotional sense of self in there that really has the reins. And that's what's shaped through this, this attachments um, dynamic with our parents and really builds the resilience for us to be in the world and to handle the world or, or it doesn't. And then we use really interesting coping mechanisms that we learned when we were super, super young. Yes. Yeah. And through this exploration within myself, it's been really eye-opening because the ways it was showing up as an adult seemed super subtle. It's easy because they're unconscious to not even recognize, oh, this tendency or this emotion or this anxiety I'm always feeling or this behavior mm -hmm. is actually stemming from some of these attachment ruptures. Mm -hmm. So yeah. maybe for the sake of example, to help people like understand how this could look, we can talk about, I mean, I'm open to talking about me since mm -hmm. I worked yeah. with you. Yep. And I think you tell me about me better than I can tell <laughs> you about myself, but I believe that I've really had this sort of anxious mm -hmm. attachment and this tendency of disowning my needs, mm -hmm. but then also having this neediness of like really longing to get those mm -hmm. needs met yep. and tending to put my needs on. I'll take care of other people's needs. Yeah. That way I feel like I'm getting my needs met indirectly. Yeah. So it's, it's very, I mean, you just very beautifully, beautifully described sort of text textbook, anxious attachment or anxious preoccupied is even a much better way to say it. Um, so when our, when our care and our co-regulation from our caregiver, our mom usually is intermittent when we're, when we're young, we become um, hyper on the lookout for any sense of care to actually come our way. And we become very anxious because we don't know when it's going to come instead of being like, oh, my needs are going to actually be taken care of and cared for. So I can relax into that. And I know when I do the thing, somebody's there versus like sometimes when I do the thing, it's there. Sometimes when I do the thing, it's care isn't there. I've got to make sure this care is going to be here. And as you were saying, like you become very aware of how do I care for somebody else? so that they're in a regulated enough state to care for me. And that becomes the water that we swim in. And it be, just becomes the way that our world is because we don't know any other way as a child. And that's the, that's the thing with these attachment strategies. If you grew up in a secure household, you just expect the world to be that way. If you grew up in a, uh, as an avoidant child where you're just it was more neglect, you're just parents just weren't tuned into you. Um, you just grow up with the expectation that like, my needs aren't going to be met. So why have them in the first place? And with um, anxious, preoccupied folks, it's like, well, if I make sure they're okay, I'll be okay. My needs don't matter. Let me caretake this person. Um, and they, you know, it's commonly known as empaths in the personal growth world. I'm just really empathic. I always have been my, my whole life. So well, your parents were probably a little dysregulated. Ooh, <laughs> that's an interesting way to perceive being an empath. Because so many of the women I work with mm -hmm. identify as being empaths. Mm -hmm. And we work on that, right? Because they've taken on everybody else's emotional energy. 
they're dysregulated. And so we, I say we, as in people who turn to food to self-regulate, mm-hmm. right? We use the food as a way to try and help ourselves feel better mm-hmm. because we're trying to take care of everybody else mm-hmm. and have totally become disconnected from our own body, our own needs, and mm-hmm. how to regulate ourselves in effective ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Because your parents weren't there to reflect back like healthy ways of how you actually regulate your own emotional body. And that's like such a core piece of the conversation. Like I mentioned needs earlier, but then emotional regulation of like, how do we do that from the inside out is such a, such a skill inside of, inside of this world. Right. Because how would we learn how to emotionally regulate for ourselves if we don't have Mm -hmm. parents who can teach that to us, model it to us and, and I, my understanding is, like, as humans, we're meant to experience co-regulation, that that should happen in connection or relationship naturally. Mm-hmm. It's 100% what we are built for, and it is a superpower that we can have and cultivate of, like, real deep sense of embodied safety with other people. And from the work that I've done with a lot of a lot of people is most people don't actually know what that is because we've never been taught. We've never, our families didn't have it. As you said, like our families, you know, generally do the best that they can. But if our parents were, um, spent a lot of time in dysregulation or dissociation, that's just the way we learned that the world was. So we didn't have a healthy role model of how to do that. We were never taught it in school, um, TV and mainstream culture obviously doesn't teach it. So, we have to learn it ourselves. Um, and fortunately we can do that now. And we'll say like with the avoidant children, they had to shut off their empathy systems with anxious children. They had to hyperactivate them and disorganized children. They're just depends on what's happening. And then for secure Mm -hmm. sort of just in the middle. Um, in order for a child to like develop secure attachment, they just need their needs attuned to like 30% of the time. 30? So 30%. It's not a very high bar. It's not even, <laughs> it's not it doesn't very sound high. like that much. It's not. Um, really makes a lot of questions around, you know, what my family is doing. <laughs> We're um, not meeting any parents in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not at all. And one thing I do want to say is that... Um, attachment strategies are a part of us um they're not the whole thing and we're we're very much not like oh i'm anxiously attached and that's what i am that's who i am that's how i am in the world it's like oh i have anxiously attached parts i have these strategies i learned inside of myself and we can very much have anxious patterns we can have avoidant patterns because you know we generally had two parents one of them might have been avoidant one of them might have been anxious we we take all of that in unconsciously, super young age, and we learn those strategies. So, like, we really want to look at attachment as a moment by moment thing of like, how am I emotionally responding to this particular situation? And a lot of the times, we can be really well regulated, really present, like very secure, functioning, and like happy go lucky in the world, and great. And then there may be some instances where it's just like, oops. <laughs> I've been, I've been off to the races um, in an activation for the last few hours. Yeah. I mean, that was my experience where 
I thought I had a pretty secure attachment style until I found myself in a situation in a relationship where all of a sudden all of these anxious parts and pieces are getting activated and coming to the surface. Mm-hmm. And so usually our probably closest relationships are the ones that will reveal to us mm-hmm. the more deeply yeah. sort of uh, programmed parts of ourselves when it comes to attachment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, our, you know, our close intimate relationships and ac- technically all of our relationships because our attachment strategies show up in coworkers, friends, all of that. But of, of, of course, our intimate relationships are the, the best mirrors for that of like, oh, when they, when they pull away, I get anxious and I start to chase them. And we can start to see that and just recognize it as a pattern and start to shift it through self-reflective work and a couple of the different skill sets like polyvagal theory is one that I really highly recommend for this kind of stuff. And then learning this, uh, learning to identify, identify needs and the language capacity of how to share that and boundary work is, you know, a pretty important one um, that's, you know, needed by a lot of us. But as we're growing up, if we don't know any different, you know, like an anxious style of relating is just what we knew. And it was just the strategy that we developed. And if we've never had it reflected back that there's another way of being, we just don't know. And so it's just the way we live, the water we swim in and what we know to do. Yeah. And I'm curious if this makes sense to you, because this is how I've started to recognize sort of the energy of an anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not actively chasing after someone or something, what I've experienced, and I'm realizing now looking back on my experience with food cravings and like needing, like have to go out of my way, will literally hurt people to get to this food because there was such a strong need energy inside. Mm -hmm. And that when you're not getting those needs met or you're not even aware of what those needs are, and we don't have the human relationships where we're getting that secure love or we're feeling seen or heard or supported mm-hmm. at least my experience and what i kind of observe in a lot of women is then we start to crave and seek out food mm-hmm. to try and fill the need or mm-hmm. be a substitute for like the true need yeah. the real emotional nourishment that we're craving mm-hmm. is that one way that anxious attachment could potentially show up oh absolutely yeah um if you know if we were children and we didn't get reflected back like what we really need in order to feel safe and comforted and connected and well internally regulated and the ability to healthily co-regulate we'll use the best available thing that we have and especially when we're kids what do we have we have food and particularly down in our bellies most of our um, dopamine and oxytocin um, serotonin are is actually made in our in our belly and our gut and so we will use the next best thing that we can and if food was something that we used to soothe ourselves when we were a kid because our parents weren't there we'll go back to that because it's the most comforting thing we we know and we wouldn't have actually learned the these other self-regulation strategies co-regulation strategies um Usually when it's unconscious, I'll refer to it as an auto-regulation strategy. So it's like we have to look at the things that we do in order to try to soothe ourselves to feel better when this, um, when the sense of discomfort comes up. 
and start to start to work that process because there's a lot of time for the uh, attachment strategies. They won't actually be in touch with where the real discomfort is. And so they won't know how to process the real, um, the real upset or the rupture and use things to sort of remedy it, but it's not the actual um, touching of the original, the original issue. So like we'll focus on food is the issue mm-hmm. or yeah. I'm upset in the present because my partner ignored me or blew me off. Mm-hmm. But really there's like a deeper rupture yeah. that yeah. these are pointing to. Yeah. So, and this is where we get into like the sort of the deeper attachment repair and we talk about trauma um, repair as well, healing trauma, um, relational trauma, particularly of if, if our relational trauma wasn't processed through, it wasn't healed, it wasn't repaired in the present moment, our body stores that as a memory. And we have different memory systems. We have the explicit one of like last Tuesday at three o'clock, I did this. That's, that's one kind of memory, but then our body has its own particular memory. And it does this really nifty thing where it tries to keep us safe by remembering all the traumas we've ever experienced them. And then is on the lookout constantly for anything that even remotely reminds us of those traumas we went through before. And then when those, uh, if we see something that remotely reminds us of it, we're off to the races with the fight, flight, freeze process. Um, and that, that's a bit of an issue. <laughs> um, and the, the deeper attachment healing is like going in, finding those early uh, traumas and processing them through so that our body's not responding to something that it thinks is somewhat similar of like my boyfriend, like ignored me in this particular way. And I went off on a three day uh, ride on my nervous system where it's actually like, okay, your boyfriend did something, but then you have this whole data bank of memories around what your dad did or didn't do, or somebody in your life did or didn't do. And you're having a much bigger response to that which generally we can't really see because our, our systems are really good at keeping our pain out of our awareness because we need to function. And we're responding to something relatively small in our life with a very big reaction. And then we go to these unconscious processes for self-soothing. Right. Food, yeah, foods, uh, physical pleasure, numbing out, alcohol, um, drug use, like it's it's all being looked at, like especially drug use and um, uh, eating disorders as these are self-regulation strategies to avoid the pain that's in our body. And we actually have to go in through the somatic lens and relieve that, those, those traumatic memories that are alive and well inside of us. Hey, if you're struggling with your body image, I have something for you. It's a free body gratitude meditation that I designed to help you shift your attitude about your body from one of criticism to one of gratitude and appreciation for all that it does. Because your body is so much more than its weight and shape. And experiencing body love and acceptance, it's an inside job. Click the link in the show notes to access the meditation and begin to cultivate a new perspective about that miracle body of yours. That realization for me on my own healing journey was a game changer mm-hmm. because first of all, it totally dissolved the notion that I just didn't have willpower 
or that something was wrong with me and realizing, oh, there's a reason, there's a function and it's happening so automatically and it's out of my conscious awareness. But I started to realize anytime I had this binge or purge episode, it was in response to one of these sort of unprocessed traumas being activated in the Mm -hmm. present. And then I worked with a practitioner to be able to start to do that deeper healing work. Mm -hmm. And it changed everything for me, which is Mm -hmm. why now with my clients, I tell them, okay, we get to use your episodes as sort of the diving board into your, your brain and body to uncover the stored trauma or unprocessed emotional wounds Mm -hmm. that are very much still affecting you in the present moment. You just don't realize it. Mm -hmm. And working with you, opened a whole other layer because a lot of the work I was doing, at least on myself, was more memories, I'd say, as a child versus in those formative years of infant to two. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like with with our work, we were touching on a lot of these these energies stored in my body that I didn't necessarily have memory or language to Mm -hmm. recall, but that Mm -hmm. were very much present. Yep. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about like the repair repair process. Cause I know for myself, I was like, well, how do we do that if we don't remember? <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is part of the, the trickiness. Cause like basically like we can have some memories from before five, but generally we're not going to, and especially like earlier than two years old, we're just not going to like that part of our brain just is not generally online yet. It hasn't developed. So it's just not there, but the emotional and bodily memory, the somatic memory is very much there. Um, so this is, you know, this is a pretty nuanced piece of the conversation. Um, and I will start out by saying that the remedy um, for this is really, 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 um, like if we're working as, as pairs, husband, wife, partner, mother, child, whatever, it's really loving presence. Like the remedy itself is loving presence. You attune to the other being and just be with them in their, in their pain, their difficulty, their suffering. Like that attuned, well-regulated, interconnected presence, like that's what does the healing. And then we just have a lot of skill sets in addition to that to get somebody into that state. So you let them know that somebody's there with them inside of this activation that they're having and that they can go through it, process it with the help of somebody, and then we're on the other side. So I'll start with that before we get into more nuanced stuff. But the remedy is just loving, attuned presence, period. Um, And all the neurobiology and research like backs that up. It's really, really beautiful where there's all these like really deep books on trauma repair and attachment repair. And at the end of it, they're like, it's all about love. Totally. (laughs) It like makes sense. And then it's something else entirely to experience it. Yeah. Especially if you haven't experienced that loving tuned, Mm -hmm. tuned presence, or you just haven't in a very long time. Mm -hmm. It, It can be a little foreign. And then at least I know for me working with you to receive it sometimes can feel even uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I don't know if I like this or mm, this might leave this feeling. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to open up to it. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot that just even being held by that amount of loving care and attention that that, that can bring up so much in and yeah. of itself. Yeah. Cause that kind of attention or connections, it's intimacy. 
And we may have a whole bunch of messages around what intimacy means, or it might be threatening, or we just might not have ever actually experienced it before, where it's just loving presence that can actually like touch our inner self. And as we mentioned earlier, that feeling seen, feeling known, feeling comforted, like if we didn't have that as a child, those, those muscles didn't get to develop, if you will, or the neural pathways didn't get to develop. So it's, it can be over, can feel overwhelming because it's just more than what we've known how to handle. Um, but it's really, really good when it starts to get in there and starts to really open things up of like, oh, this is what actual embodied safety feels like. And this is what it's like to transmit it and receive it from somebody because we're, um, we're very interconnected beings on there. We could do like multiple podcast episodes on just how are we interconnected and we transmit these cues of safety and threat uh, through a whole bunch of unconscious processes and we're hardwired to receive that. It's like people talk about the vibe of somebody when they walk in the room, like that's the level that we're talking about. Like it's a very real thing that they can measure in laboratories and we can become very proficient at working at. And when we know enough about attachment, um, and it's very helpful to know enough about the theory of it to be like, okay, this is how it plays out. These are what the patterns are. Like if you know the attachment strategies, each of the, the avoidant, the anxious, the disorganized, they're basically scripts. They have their own way of speaking, their own language they use, their own way they show up in the body. And you, as a practitioner, if you, you know enough about that, you can just see it. It's, it's very apparent in somebody's response and activity of what they're doing or how they're responding. And then when you know the strategies, you know the remedies. And you know the protectors that are going to be present inside of um, somebody's attachment response. And you can know how they're going to show up. Like if an avoidant person is there and they, they're getting they're getting angry and they're wanting to push away, it's like, okay, this is a protective, their protective mechanisms. And somewhere behind that is somebody that wants care and wants to wants to feel loved, and they just might not know how to do that. So you can, you can acknowledge the protectors and be like, mm -hmm, yeah, we're just going to go back here and say hi. Um, with the more anxious ones, you know, it's reflecting their experience back to them and like, hey, where are you right now? What are you feeling? What are you needing? You don't know. That's great. How about this? Oh, sounds good. How about like taking some deep breaths and just checking in with our own with our own self and just noticing it's like, oh God, I'm trying to like, I'm not feeling okay and most of my attention's on this other person. I need to bring it back to myself and actually start to re-regulate my own system so I don't need somebody to, for me to be okay, but then we can start to open up those processes of like, I'm actually okay and they're okay now what can we do inside of this space? And those are some of the sort of skill sets that we teach and develop along the way because none of us ever went to relational school growing up because they didn't teach it. Um, we were taught how to not talk to each other, um, not taught anything about actual emotional intelligence, even though it's like such a primary piece of our experience. Um, but when, you know, when you get a little bit of this under your belt, you can see somebody's, um, emotional response or attachment response and know that you know there's a part that's activated in there and what do we all fundamentally want on a deep deep level is to feel safe and feel loved 
And what do we, what can we do to get somebody back to there becomes a real big question. Um, and that's like so much of the work of like, what do you need right now to actually feel safe? And as a practitioner, so much of the work that I do is actually just being in an embodied state of safety and being able to share that with somebody, just like radiate it out into the space. They're able to feel it. And even if they, you know, flop around, try to, we'll say, try to get away from it. It's like, I'm still here. And just the slow, steady presence of care is always going to be here. And that's the imprint that we, that we put into somebody's system. And then through the somatic attachment work, we um, teach people how to cultivate those senses of embodied safety for themselves and the, the self-reflective capacity to know where they're at, what they need, and sort of how to stay in this, this window of safety or this resilience of, of safety. And so the repair process, would it be fair to say it's sort of having micro moments of these moments of safety, mm -hmm. moments of loving presence and sort of getting that imprint in your nervous system? Yeah. So I'll walk this through some of the sort of Deb Dana's language, who she does uh, polyvagal theory, and she has a couple of books out there and audio programs, which are really good for this. I've recommended to... Anchored? <laughs> Anchored is her, her most recent one. Then she just came out with, uh, do a little commercial for her, the polyvagal card deck. So we really want to think about like re like cultivating our, our safety system or our attachment systems, like really like going to the gym. Like, you know, when we first go to the gym, we can like pick, pick up little five pound weights and it's hard and not do a whole lot, but with repeated exercise, we can, we become stronger, we become more resilient, we can handle more stress that comes in. And the same thing can be said about safety of like Deb talks about it as glow uh, glimmers, like we have a little glimmer of what brings us safety in our life or what brings us goodness, well being, all of that, it might be a flower, it might be a beautiful song, it might be a nature experience, it might be connecting with a animal, it might be a person that was able to reflect back to us safety at some point in our life might not have been our parents but it might you know might have been a grandparent or somebody somebody else like they could see the goodness in us and we felt good with them and we can take that little experience and start to focus on those and take them from little glimmers of like oh that that was nice to like really being able to open up into the experience of connection and internal safety and safety with another person. And we, we cultivate the capacity, we, through neuroplasticity, we, we develop the circuitry of safety. Um, yeah. Guessing that's probably not an overnight process. Not so much. <laughs> um, this work that takes time to really begin to sort of embed this sense of safety mm -hmm. or create that new patterning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we are literally, through the, the blessings of neuroplasticity, we are changing our neurobiological wiring to experience the world and ourselves differently. Um, and that, that takes time, but fortunately we can do it and we can focus on it. And one of the things that I say, like, yeah, attachment, Repair does take time, but the more you can focus on it and the more skillful approaches and 
working on it in a couple of different ways. Like the faster it goes, the deeper it gets in there. And it's a very, very, very worthwhile um, process and experience because that, that experience of earned secure um, functioning is technically what they call it, but earned security. It's just an easier way to live life because we're not using these insecure attachment strategies, which are just really expensive on a uh, biological level. Like regulating ourselves through anger is hard. Um, regulating ourselves through dissociation is hard and they're expensive, both on our own physiologic physiology and our own relational well-being. But the actual like, security of and safety of like oh i'm having like the thing that you just did like hit me in this way it can we repair from that great we did that inside of 30 minutes and now we're back to like connection and well-being and supporting each other and the goodness of, of the world like that's a much 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 better way to live and it's what we're supposed to be doing right and if you <sighs> these adaptive attachment styles that have been sort of the foundation of how you function in the world for mm -hmm. most of your life, <laughs> then it makes sense at whatever age you're at, whether it's 20, 30, 40 and beyond, that it is going to take probably a few years mm -hmm. to really begin to, to notice the shifts. Yeah. I'm sort of guessing here, but you know, that when we have this expectation of, of how healing should look, you know, most people come in or they come to me expecting in three months that this should be better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Small shifts, micro, micro moments, you know, we're mm -hmm. seeing the changes over time. And yes, doing this work is certainly going to sort of collapse or accelerate how quote unquote long it takes you to get there. Mm -hmm. But it's not like the, that one session is going to just totally clear this up and and you will leave yeah. the secure attachment style mm -hmm. yeah and you've you've touched upon it a few times where it's like you know this is really um it's a really intelligent system that keeps us protected and keeps us alive and our like our nervous system conditioning wiring like goes back all the way through all of our ancestors and it's kept all of them alive through eons and eons and eons. So it's like that level of intelligence is what is trying to keep us alive. And it's very adaptive to the situations we, we just naturally grow up in. So it's our nervous system's best response to keep us alive in the conditions we find ourselves. So really intelligent, like profoundly intelligent system. But then we're, we're privileged enough in our society to get to places where like we can recognize that, oh, these early adaptive strategies aren't actually serving us anymore. So we can start to shift it. And um, just, you know, in the last I'll argue 10 years, they've really started to understand like how much we can shift it. And here's all these ways to do so. And um, it takes a bit of time, but it's very, 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 very worth it to, to do so. Because like when we really start to feel safety and care coming from somebody else, and then we can really let it in like it's when life gets really um we'll say juicy and just good and uh, like every single human being has this beautiful capacity for say basic goodness or innate goodness inside of them like care and compassion radiate throughout our whole experience 
and we can learn to touch into that and we can learn to share that with each other and it's very worth the very worth the, the time and effort to to put in to do so yeah and i would imagine just with the awareness alone of the attachment styles and mm-hmm. the recognition that this is a highly intelligent formation of a protective mechanism let's mm-hmm. say that you could have a new way of viewing other people's behaviors and your own because mm-hmm. i know for me prior to this knowledge i would get so frustrated with somebody who was being avoidant or want to get angry or judge them or blame them and then you go into kind of attack mode mm-hmm. versus having that compassion mm-hmm. right and that loving awareness that actually would probably be most helpful in that situation yeah. Yeah. whether that's directed towards another or towards yourself mm-hmm. Yeah, loving kindness and self-compassion for ourselves is really important, especially when we go through our attachment strategies, because we all, you know, we all go through them at times of like, oh, I've, I've just been doing that thing that I've been trying not to do for however amount of time. Instead of like beating myself up with a should stick or being self-critical, um, I can see those patterns that I've tried to enact before and create a little bit of space and be like, okay. I see what I'm trying to do. Let me use these other healthier strategies of self-regulation or co-regulation to really come out on the other side of this instead of um, continuing to beat myself up for something that I learned when I was less than two years old. Like, like what could we have done as a two-year-old to get better care? Like, we were doing the best we can. So we want to have a lot of kindness for ourselves, a lot of kindness for other people. Um, and that's, you know, once again, something we haven't actively um, been taught generally, um, not nearly as deeply as it can go of like, how do we really express kindness and care and compassion for each other uh, with boundaries? <laughs> we want to have compassion with boundaries. Um, but how do we do that inside of our relationships and inside of our connections? Yeah. And just even, I mean, this is probably for another conversation for another day with which is boundaries, because even just the idea of setting boundaries can bring up so much fear around Mm -hmm. how other people are going to respond to that. And that is probably directly linked to our Mm -hmm. original attachment experiences. If I, if I set a boundary, love is going to go away. Yeah. Yeah. I know that fear Uh Uh (laughs) and it hurts. It's painful, which is why we avoid it. And mm-hmm. that for me was one reason why I so strongly turned to food because mm-hmm. like you said, we want to avoid this pain and having to feel it mm-hmm. and food at least gave that momentary pleasure mm-hmm. that felt somewhat better in the moment, but then way worse after. Yeah. And yeah. So it's really a journey of unlearning one way and relearning new effective ways mm-hmm. and to start to do that in connection in relationship. Mm-hmm. That that was a key piece is, you know, for so long, I tried to heal myself on my own. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I started to actually find the right support and with a loving, safe practitioner such as yourself, that mm-hmm. I really started to notice the internal shifts. Yeah, yeah. And especially the reflection process of um, somebody that's skillful, being able to see the way we're holding ourselves and offer gentle invitations to be like oh no we can we can actually do it this way too and we can connect in these ways where it might um 
might not have had that experience before. It might not have felt safe, but we can try it out and see how it feels. Oh, 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 a little bit better than than um, using food and like just for people out there, like the co-regulation piece when it's done well is super effective at bringing us out of our emotional reactivity and back into these states of security and connection and care and compassion. Just like, I don't know if I can say it enough, but like co-regulation is where it's at. And we need other people in our lives that can help us through these things and can be well-regulated while we go into our, to our ouchy states and then come back out and be like, this is okay too. Yes. And so I would highly encourage anyone listening. If you are, needing a really amazing human who can support you and starting to do this attachment repair work and experiencing co-regulation and how that actually feels when it is with someone who is safe and attuned and offers no judgment and just love and compassion. I definitely want to encourage people to connect with you, Bunan, because I can speak firsthand at how how superb you are at this work and creating that container and space. So can you share just some of the ways people could connect with you or work with you if mm -hmm. you are ready to dive into this kind of work? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for the prompt and the kind words. I'm just glowing over here. Um, yeah, so there's, of course, uh, my website, bunanbrown.com, um, which will basically direct you to reaching out through the email of bunanbrown at gmail. Com, and you can get a little bit more of an overview of uh, what I do and a little bit about somatic attachment repair on the website. And then to get a little bit more specific, uh, there's sort of an attachment coaching process that I can take people through, which is one level. It's like 10 weeks of going through and getting a really deep snapshot of where they're at, what sort of skill sets they would need to develop and letting them sort of go on their, their road of personalized attachment repair. Um, and starting that journey with um, a lot of expertise so you don't have to try to reinvent the wheel. And then there's deeper support of somatic attachment repair where it's one-on-one -on -one and we go in for um, quite a while and there's methods we can do online and there's methods we can do in person. And then there's small group facilitation around sort of teaching these skill sets to, we can do couples if they want to learn like how do we actually co-regulate with each other, which is particularly fun stuff to figure out and then smaller group process for how do we actually start to share on these emotional levels and get support and what are the skill sets that we can cultivate and ways we can play of around co-regulation and learning all of these like attachments, this attachment language, because it is its own, um, not verbal language, but it's a, it's a nonverbal language of like, how do we actually express and share in safety and connection um, and then I've been launching and running attachment focused men's groups because, you know, we need we need a lot of help, a lot of support on men. You got yeah. yeah. So I've been doing that here here in Boulder, Colorado, where I'm based out of and then also do um, meditation retreats that are focused on loving kindness and compassion and service of attachment repair because uh, we can very much use our own meditative cultivation for developing these profound capacities for care and love and compassion. And if we direct it right, it's actually really, really in service of healing attachment and becoming, uh, I'll say, quite skillful at sharing these capacities in the world. 
Yeah, my understanding is through learning how to experience co-regulation, for example, in our work, it builds my capacity to then essentially do the same for myself. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the ability to access that loving presence and almost like dual awareness, hold myself with love in that moment to be able mm -hmm. to bring true regulation back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to even take it as a little cut deeper of we can learn how to access like the true like pools or um, texture of compassion in our own experience. And we can draw, we'll say draw from that and just share it with the world in a way that it's not taken from us, but it's something we actually get and it's freely 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 given and whether we know it or not we directly impact the state of people around us and we can either do that unconsciously or we can become very very conscious of that and the deeper resilience and like the more in touch we are with ourselves and our own capacity to really be okay the more we can share that with other people and it's it's a beautiful skill set to share. And I can just imagine how powerful that would be at kind of healing the world, which we really mm -hmm. need right now. Yeah. So we had a lot of attuned, healed beings walking around just radiating this loving compassion to everyone else. It would mm -hmm. really just feel so amazing to exist in that sort of world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because our, as the uh, wisdom traditions say, like bliss is our birthright. And it's already here. And if we really open up to these depths of love and interconnectivity, um, we can really do some miraculous pieces around holding and seeing one another. Like, won't get into it now, but if people like really understood how much they can know about a person by actually just being with them and connecting with them, there is vast amount of information that we can see about somebody else and be like, are you feeling this? Are you feeling a thing right there right now? And you can recognize when somebody's a little bit dysregulated or holding something emotionally, help them just work it through and get back to a place of like, oh yeah, the world's good. And I can actually be loved and supported and cared for and connected with. And then we can go play. And like that play piece is really important because that's what we're supposed to be doing as humans instead of working nine to fives and being on the grind. It's like, how do we actually play and bring meaning and value into our lives um, in interconnected ways? Um, and like, that's what we're designed to do. Right. Not meaning and value through accomplishments and striving and working harder, yeah. but just through your being. Uh -huh. Yeah. And that's in the play and playing together. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that you're touching on a real core attachment piece there. Like so many kids got their value through they got reflected back that they were good through accomplishing stuff in the world versus them themselves being reflected that their self is good. And when our when we recognize that our sense of self is good, we get to be that in the world and we get to be in a way that's like this is this world is good it's i'm not lonely i'm not depressed i'm not cut off from reality but i am part of this reality and we can play in it and get back to art and creativity and connection and the the real sweetness of like feeling seen and feeling known 
by one another. And it is a profound level of intimacy that we can cultivate. And, you know, I've got, you know, quite the background in Buddhism. And one of the ways we talk about the enlightened state is it's profound intimacy with all things. Right. I mean, how much social media <laughs> has kept us from that intimacy even more. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it, I feel like it's really put that wedge of like further disconnecting us from each other. Mm -hmm. And it's no wonder that we have so many problems with mental health beyond eating disorders, just depression, yeah. anxiety, suicide, addiction. It's mm -hmm. kind of, I'm just getting this feeling right now of how important this work really is yeah. for all beings, mm -hmm. especially at this time in this age, yeah. such where it's so easy for us to isolate and so easy for us to not be in connection, mm -hmm. really put the effort in to start to do this yeah. work. Yeah. And earlier we had talked about this like paradigm shift coming through and just a real quick piece around the psychological sciences. You know, for a hundred years we had behaviorism where it was somebody else like looking at somebody else and determining why they were in the world because of how they behaved and then in the 90s we got into cognitive behavioral therapy which is oh we can we can think our way out of all this stuff and um we can just you know process it that way and then since the 2000s we had this decade of brain science where they started using all this imagery stuff and in the last uh 10 years or so they've been chewing on that and recognized like oh all of this relational ways of being really create our sense of self, create our, our value in the world, like all these core wounds that people have are a lack of reflection of the sense of self. And our, our being is shaped through relationship. It's shaped through reflection, just like a baby can learn any language in the world when it's born. We learn a sense of self through the reflection of our caregivers primarily and our culture to quite a degree. And they're, they've been really looking at that and recognizing it's like, oh, this relational way of being is like the lack of that is what's caused so much of the mental health issues, so much depression, so much pain, um, so much of the um, somatic experience that we're having manifesting as all of these uh, medical issues. And most of our medical profession only treats the body as a thing or an it, and they don't look at the relational capacities they haven't looked at these deeper emotional um wounds and how they impact our living day to day and so you know you go to a doctor and you get a pill and in actuality it's like hey we actually need to um like cultivate resilience inside of your autonomic nervous system so that you don't go into these states of collapse or over excitement and you can stay um regulated and stay inside of this window of tolerance and you know they try to get pills to mitigate the um symptoms instead of recognizing that so many of the causes of so much pain and suffering in our society days through emotional neglect turmoil trauma um and how do we actually alleviate that and that's this understanding of the neuroscience of attachment the importance of relationship the importance of um relational capacities to heal trauma like it's just starting to be understood and if you take a look at it it's like oh this is going to be a really big wave coming into 
sort of the next understanding of our cultural well-being and evolution and like this is what we're actually hardwired to do is to be interconnected on incredible ways and when we have that we feel really good and we can actively turn on and cultivate feelings of well-being together and share them and generate that like in a much more beautiful way than any SSRI I could ever do. Yeah, and if you've been cut off from that intimacy and connection, you don't realize what you're missing. Yeah. You yeah. might not feel well and you're longing for something, mm-hmm. not realizing what it is you truly need is that mm-hmm. full of intimacy and connection because it's just not something that you've experienced. Yeah. yeah. Why doing this work is so valuable. Mm-hmm. So I want to just encourage anybody listening if you feel your own inner desire or this full body yes this is exactly what i need it is speaking to my soul definitely connect with punan and Mm. see if there's an opportunity to explore working together virtually or in Boulder if you're in the area and you know have the courage to to embark on this exciting sometimes frustrating other times really emotional Mm. every time worth it healing journey Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to have you come through and to learn a little bit about attachment and take this back into the world and into the connections that we all have because there's there's a lot of beauty and well-being inside of really understanding what like say relational intelligence is or like what real deep co-regulation can be and how good it can get. Uh, let's say it's uh, better than any drug out there like what can we actually feel when we're truly connected with someone we know they love and care about us we can feel it we can reflect that back to them and we develop that security and safety of that intimate bond to where we know like this person has our back and they have mine and that we can work through whatever trials and tribulations come up in the meantime yes ah so good Thank you, Bunan, for your time and wisdom. I really have enjoyed this conversation and I suspect that we will have a few more subsequent convos because we have just scratched the surface of all of the the sort of nitty gritty around attachment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's so much more that can be shared and we've, we've hit like the real, the quintessential pieces for sure. Thanks for tuning in to the Empowered Eating and Living Podcast. If you're feeling inspired to start your inner work journey to improve your food and eating issues, then check out my group mentorship and inner work program, Energize Your Life. This six-month container is a place where you can learn and receive support with me and my team, as well as connect with other women on a journey similar to yours. You don't have to do it alone. We're here to help. Visit sarahspears.com slash energize your life to learn more and enroll.